Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today, as we always do, by stating that the goal of these shows is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but also outside of GI as well. Today, we are continuing our series devoted to wraparound services that benefit patients with GI disorders. They certainly add value to the care provided. This is our second episode of three that we have planned. In the first show of the series, we interviewed Dr. Lori Kiefer, who led us in a discussion on behavioral health wraparound services. Today's episode will be focused on another important but not commonly discussed wraparound service, which deals with disorders that interfere with circadian rhythms, the inner clocks that run our body systems. To assist us in our discussion today around circadian rhythms, our guest is a 30-year friend of mine, Dr. Ali Keshavarzian, who is the Josephine Derenforth Professor of Medicine at Rush here in Chicago. He is also the Graduate College Associate Dean for Faculty Mentoring, and most importantly for today, the Director of the Rush Center for Integrated Microbiome and Chronobiology Research. Ali was a consultant for me through my entire 35-year career practicing GI. From the years he was chief of GI at Loyola to as many years as chief at GI at Rush, my entire GI group used Ali for our most difficult and challenging cases. He represents the true academic gastroenterologist, one who not only maintains outstanding clinical skills, but at the same time pursues innovative research. He is truly the best of both. One of Ali's passions is chronobiology, the study of how biological rhythms affect health. As he will tell you, this is also intertwined with the science of the fecal microbiome. He's going to tell us all about that on our show today. Welcome to the show, Ali. Thank you, Larry, and thank you for your kind uh, words, my friends. It's been an honor to be your friends and your uh, close colleague. Well, I could have gone much longer, Ali. I actually had to cut that off where I did. Let's begin here. The first thing I want to do is let you expand on what I told the listeners. Tell our listeners about your longstanding career. How did you get to where you are today? How did you get into GI? What has been the passion that's driven you through your career? My research career began in early 80s uh, after I did my postgraduate training, both clinical and research in England, in London, England. And when I moved to the United States in 1984 and began my own laboratory in 85, I've always been intrigued with the epidemiology of chronic diseases. Obviously, initially was GI and then expanded. That how come that many diseases such as Crohn's ulcerative colitis in GI and neurological disorders such as Parkinson's, MS, or even cancers have exponential increase in incidence and also very intriguing epidemiology that these diseases were not common in developing country like my home country, Iran. And then it become common after those developing country adopted a Western lifestyle. Obviously, Larry, you know better than I that our gene pool would not change in 50 years. 
And yet, those the incidence of those chronic diseases drastically changed. Well, it couldn't be gene. That means it's environment. For I began to test the quest, uh, hypothesis, answer the question, what environmental factors, and I primarily focused on the Western lifestyle environmental factors that are facilitating or accelerating chronic diseases, and how? The first things that I had to ask myself, is there a common thread among those varied diseases? Talking about the GI disease, such as Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, to the colon cancer, to Alzheimer's and Parkinson, for God's sake, it has to be some common thread. And when we proposed that one in early 80s, it was controversial that we said all those non-communicable, non-infectious disease, chronic diseases are inflammation. And inflammation is a common thread. Then I asked myself, what is the gateway for environmental factors that affect the host? Now my bias came, and I said it in GI because I'm a gastroenterologist, and we as a gastroenterologist are, are like a carpenter. We see everything as a nail and a hammer. <laughs> but if you look at it, in fact, GI is the largest surface that interacts us and environment. It's about 350 square meter, larger than football field, larger than our skin. Is a huge surface area, but it makes sense that would be one of the gateway. And also, I thought that is a rather tough neighborhood. It has lots of bacteria that we knew. It has to have an almost impossible task to allow the nutrient and goodies to get into our system and yet be a barrier to prevent toxin, infection, and so on, to not get to the intestine. We came with the hypothesis that those environmental factors impact the host through uh, changing a macro environment in the gut, and the middleman is bacteria. In 80s and 90s, I decided not to study the bacteria because the tool was not there, but only 10% of the bacteria can be cultured, and that was the only tool we had. We began to study the bacteria in early 2000 when non-culture-based method become, become available. In 80s and 90s, I said, doesn't matter what kind of bacteria is there, but the barrier is the important one because it can either tighten up, prevent the toxin to go in, or loosen up, or leaky gut to get it out. And our uh, focus was on uh, intestinal barrier. And the environmental factor we looked at initially was diet and alcohol and stress. And my practice is GI, and I try to answer questions that it comes to me through my patients that I cannot answer, and I go and try to answer it. And you may recall in 80s, patients were convinced that the stress is very relevant in their disease. They thought that their, say, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis flare after the stress. And by and large, the uh, medical community dismissed that. And I 
could not. I mean, one of the things that I enjoy to listen to the patients, and I think that they have some truth. And because of that, we said, let's look at the effect of a stress in intestinal milieu and intestinal barrier. And through the series of investigation, we showed and others showed as well that the stress negatively impacts the intestine, especially intestinal barrier and cause gut leak. Now, one of the things that I put in my practice that not to look at the patient as ulcerative colitis or Crohn's and not just look at the intervention as a pharmaceutical. I had a very holistic view of the disease and the patient as a whole. And I said, medication is a very important part, but there are other aspects of the patient life that has to be incorporated. And therefore, I included the stress management in management of patients, including IBD. In fact, your initial, the first guest, Dr. Lori Kiefer, was my first psychologist. And I believe, at least in Chicago area, for sure, we were the only GI that we had a psychologist hired in the GI and was a full-time faculty in GI. And we were the first in the nation at the time that we incorporated the stress and the stress management in management of patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Dr. Kiefer had uh, contributed significantly, started working with me in the 80s and published with me, and then subsequently, obviously, he's been a, has done a pioneer work in that field. Then I was emphasizing on managing stress. And some of my patients said, yeah, stress only affects me if it is bad enough to disrupt my sleep. Yeah. And enough of them said that. Then I said, let's look at the impact of a, a sleep and a sleep disturbance in inflammatory bowel disease. And in fact, at the time, Dr. Kiefer was with me and the, uh, we were, if not the first, one of the very first group that look at the impact of a sleep in inflammatory bowel disease. And we showed that it's clearly disrupted even when they were not active. They were, it was not disrupted because they had to wake up in the middle of the night to have a bowel movement. It was disrupted. And we started incorporate sleep hygiene in management of our patients. And therefore, my patients coming, not only I was asking about the diet and alcohol that we can talk about it on the road that we showed markedly affect the intestinal milieu and bacteria in the intestine and the barrier function. I asked about the sleep as well. And then some of my patients, the doctors, nurses, firefighters, the uh, policemen, they said, funny you are telling me that when we are having the shift work, our GI get worse. By the way, those could be GI symptoms, not inflammation. And by the way, we showed that the sleep disturbance or stress not only worsen the symptoms, it's worsen the inflammation. And then I asked myself, wow, could it be the sleep disturbance as a consequence of the shift work or something different. In fact, one of my patients that is stuck to my head was a policeman. I really couldn't get his colitis under control. And I said, you need to have a, a surgery and have your colon removed. And his wife said, you keep talking about the sleep and, and the shift work. Could you write a letter for him not mm. to have a 
shift for. So sure. And one of the benefits of working in a government uh, is that they listen to you. The private, <laughs> we don't listen to you. Yes. And they, they say, sure enough, it, it doesn't need to do a uh, uh, shift for. And his colitis is when he remish. Now, you could say that because of the time and the eventually medication, biologic force, but nonetheless went to remish. Few months later, he came. In fact, this time he didn't come with his wife. And I said, Scotty, what's going on? He said, well, I want you to write a letter for me to go back on shift work. And I said, why? He said, well, financially, significantly negative. Uh-huh. And also people in precinct, precincts are not happy for me not doing call. And I said, sure. Few months later, he had severe colitis. Wow! And his colon was removed. You you satisfied Cox posture? Probably. And then I said, <laughs> I have to look at it in a very careful manner. And I saw collaborating with one of the pioneering circadian, Fred Torek in uh, Northwestern. He's a PhD, and he said that he never uh, looked at circadians above below the neck, and we did a study in animals, animal model, and we disrupt their light dark pattern like a shift fork, and we induce colitis. Normally, we induce colitis in mice. We have a mortality of about 10%. When we disrupted their circadian, 60%, 54% of the mice died. And wow. then we continue a series of experimentations in animals and in humans. And now we have got series of data to clearly show disruption of the circadian, either because of the exposure to light in a wrong time or eating in a wrong time in the evening. Our circadian get disrupted. And now our hypothesis is that it makes the host, especially intestine, both barrier as well as bacteria, make the host susceptible, the resiliency disappear, and then will make the host more susceptible to the disease or the people that they have Crohn's ulcerative colitis and so on, that will make them to have more aggressive disease. I just give you one example to support that hypothesis. That is a study that Dr. Swanson did with me. I have shown for the first paper was over 30 years ago, that alcohol disrupts the intestinal barrier. And we showed those that have excessive alcohol get liver disease only if they got leak and intestine bacteria become abnormal. But what uh, we did, what God did, uh, we got series of nurses, healthy, young, non-obese nurses with no diseases. And half of them were day nurses, the other half were shift nurses. And we asked them to drink one to one and a half glass of red wine every day for seven days. And we looked at the bacteria in the intestine. We looked at the intestinal barrier or intestinal leak and series of other things. Those day nurses, nothing happened after seven days of social drink. The night nurses, the intestinal bacteria got disrupted an intestinal leak significantly. Right. In fact, it yes. leaked the right. same right. amount of people with Crohn's disease. For at the moment, the uh, circadian hygiene is another part of my management of the patients, which we can discuss what we do on that. Ali, Ali that, is, that is fantastic. It's very seldom that I don't 
ask another question while someone's going through that. That was a great story. Um, I'm going to break here just for a second and say, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Dr. Ali Keshabarzian, the director of the Rush Center on Integrated Microbiome and Chronobiology Research. I think I want to say one thing before we do a little pivot for the listeners. You have to think about the difference between a picket fence and a stockade fence when we think about the leaky gut, because those cells that line, you said it's, it's, it's the surface area bigger than a football field, but it's one layer of cells that are supposed to be cell to cell like a stockade fence. But what you're talking about is them becoming a picket fence in, as an analogy and letting things through. What I would like to do here, you very eloquently told the listeners about your thinking through the course of your career and, and how you've pieced this whole thing together. What I want to discuss from here is how does the microbiome affect that border. We just had a meeting. I'm on the board of the AGA and we're focused on climate change. And so I went to the microbiome center meeting. And when you think about climate change, there may be changes occurring in our microbiome due to climate change. But what I'd like you to tell the listeners is how does the the change in the chronotype of the patient, you know, their, their circadian rhythm affect their microbiome, and how does the microbiome then affect the leaky gut? The evidence that I am going to share with you in humanist studies or association, and clearly association does not necessarily means causal link. Right. But evidence for animal studies appears to be clearly causal link. And what do I mean with that? When the circadian machinery, which by the way, the circadian that is approximately 24 hours, that is the Latin for that, control every biological and chemical reaction in our body. It's got a daily oscillation, which makes sense because body is one of the most uh, cost-effective, efficient machinery. For you can imagine that your intestine doesn't need to be in full work and consume lots of energy in the middle of the night when we don't have no need or when you are resting or muscle doesn't need that but while you are walking the muscle needs and so on therefore the circadian is to control mm-hmm. but the circadian is responsible for the host to interact and adapt to our environment and you can imagine that global warming or uh, the, the, all the things that we are now talking can affect the physiology. And if so, it's most likely through the circadian system. Going back to human studies, the bacteria in the intestine, as well as in deep nasal parts, is different in those that engage in shift work. It is also different in those that habitually eat late. It's a mm-hmm. paper we published in collaboration in a group in uh, Spain 
for those of you who've gone to Spain, you know that they don't eat dinners sooner than 10 o'clock. In fact, the first time I went to Spain, I called to reserve the table. And they said, well, what time do you want? I said, 6.30. The person said, no one is here at 6.30. <laughs> um, and my colleague in Spain is a nutritionist, and he's run a very big uh, nutrition center for uh, weight loss and so on. And there were two groups of uh, patients that he studied. And both groups, they had exactly the same diet exactly the same exercise. One group had the typical Spanish food. They had dinner way after seven. And one group just only three hours earlier, not uh, later than seven o'clock. And in that group, they lost 20% more weight than the other group. And they had uh, evidence of less inflammation. And what we did, we measured bacteria in their saliva. And in those that they were late eater, they had saliva, bacteria in the saliva, which was pro-inflammatory compared to the others. For the large number of studies by different groups, that bacteria is different when you're having disrupted circadian. Either there are two ways we can disrupt our circadian. Take it through the light, dark reversal that affect our master clock in our brain. Unfortunately, we live in a society that we are all circadian challenged because we use our iPhone and iPad in the middle of the night, which is a blue light, and it's a disrupt our circadian or shift fork, or we travel a lot. There are so many ways that we can disrupt. Also, every organ in our body has their own clock, including intestine. And you can imagine the intestinal clock is not going to be regulated with light dark. It gets regulated with time of eating. If mm-hmm. you eat after hours in dark, when our center clock would say everything should cool down and we are forcing the intestine and liver to start working, that desynchrony, that misalignment causes circadian disruption. But there are two ways that we can have issue. And that is something that I highlight to my patient that not only what you have to eat, you have to know that when to eat. Now, when the circadian get disrupted, microbiota get disrupted, there are plenty of data, both in human as well as in animal, that disrupted, uh, disrupted microbiota lead to gut leak. In fact, I can tell you the studies we've done in alcohol-induced gut leak, the alcohol disrupt the barrier cause gut leak in two ways. One is direct effect of alcohol on the intestine, and the other one is uh, effect of alcohol on bacteria. At least in animal, when I prevent alcohol to disrupt the bacteria, I can prevent the gut leak, even when the alcohol have a toxic effect in there. It looks as if the effect of a bad bacteria on intestinal leak is more than a direct effect on, on intestinal bacteria. Now, when I say the causal effect in animal, that is compelling this group in Pennsylvania, what they did, they got this stool from only two subjects that they were coming from the long haul travel and the circadian was disrupted and stool from the healthy subject. And they transplanted their stool to 
the type of mice that they have a tendency to get obesity. Those mice that they got the stool from disrupted circadian hosts, they became more obese and they got abnormal metabolism. In contrast, those that they got the stool from the healthy lean subject, they got better. For wow. it appears that bacteria is important. I can give you an example for the Parkinson that we've done the same studies. And that is a segue for me that now I'm rather agnostic. I'm no longer focusing only in GI disease. We are looking at the intestinal leak, abnormal bacteria, and effect of environmental factor in other diseases. You remember I mentioned to you, I believe all diseases are inflammation. For we, have, we are looking at the effect of gut in the Parkinson. We were one of the first group, in fact, the first group to show that patients with Parkinson's disease they have gut leak. We are one of the two in the 2015, they showed patients with Parkinson have abnormal bacteria. And when we transplanted the stool from patients with Parkinson's disease to the mice that are genetically susceptible to get Parkinson, they got florid Parkinson disease, whereas when we got the stool from the healthy subject, they did not. Oh uh, therefore, at least there is something in a stool of the patient with diseases that when it's given to the genetically susceptible mice, you have to have a genetic susceptibility of the host to get either Parkinson or Alzheimer or IBD and so on. And therefore, whether it is true in human, I don't know. Ali, you have, we could probably talk for, or you could talk for hours, and I would be listening and hanging on to everything you're saying here. It's fascinating. I love how your career has taken you where you are today, you're able to explain with studies, with accurate studies, the principles, the hunches you had 30 years ago. That's, that's fascinating that, that you, your career took you in the direction that it did. And you've been so successful at proving it. And you've been a, you, you've been a pioneer here. I remember reading your first your first papers on, on Parkinson's, I kept thinking, why is he looking at Parkinson's disease? He's a gastroenterologist, but it all ties together. Listen, we've, we've filled our, our time here, and I, maybe we'll have you come back on again sometime uh, so you can continue. But I really enjoy uh, listening to you, and I'm sure the listeners will have enjoyed this as well. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you very much for um, inviting me to be part of your podcast. Uh, Yes. Well, thank you, Ali, and thanks to the audience for tuning in. You can learn more about the show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HCNowRadio. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well.